The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is Grace Abounding. Grace abounding. We're in Romans chapter 5, our text, verses 20 through 21, and we read 12 through 21 for context in your hearing. So now this morning we turn, we return to the text of Romans, and we're considering together verses 20 and 21, and in coming to our text this morning, we've come to yet another milestone, as it were, in our exposition of this letter. This morning we mark the end of chapter 5. And uh, contrary to my brother's comments earlier, uh, we're moving at a dizzying pace uh, uh, through this letter. Uh, I feel like we, we need to slow down and uh, take our time. There's just, there's so much here for us to consider. We're so grateful for that. So uh, it's been a joy uh, to walk through this letter. I've been really um, grateful for the time we've had in Romans. It's been a tremendous blessing to me personally. I pray I'm not the only one. Uh, with this small milestone now, Paul Paul comes to the end of chapter 5, and he essentially is going to conclude one thought and simply transition on to another thought now. And as we consider each of these arguments individually, as we're working through this section of text, it becomes really important for us to remember the purpose that Paul has for all of these arguments collectively. All of these arguments are fitted together. They're building blocks, as it were, and Paul is building toward a conclusion, right? So it's good for us to remember sort of where we're at in that process. So Paul now, in specifically beginning in Romans, the end of Romans chapter 3, into Romans chapter 4, having introduced to us the gospel, having introduced to us salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, Paul has now, as it were, taken us by the hand and precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, for some of our brothers, poco a poco, (laughs) that's all I know, Uh, um, Paul is going to piece by piece unpack the fullness and the depth of the riches that you and I have been afforded in our union with Jesus Christ. There is a depth to those riches, a depth to that glory that is now ours by virtue of God's grace through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're often, brothers and sisters, we're often like a child who's been given the keys to a private jet. We have no idea what we've got. We have no idea what we're holding on to. We, have no, we don't fully understand what has been given to us. And we need to understand what's been given to us. If we don't understand what's been given to us, then our faith will be small. Our gratitude will be empty. Our growth will be stunted. Our worship will be anemic. Our affections will be cool. Our assurance frail. Our devotion weak. Our joy shallow. So we need to understand what has been granted to us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than stunted growth and anemic worship and cool affections and shallow joy, brothers and sisters, if we understand the exalted status to which we've been delivered in our union with Jesus Christ, then ours becomes a joy inexpressible. Ours becomes a joy full of wonder. Ours becomes a hope, as Paul says here, that will not, shall not disappoint. We are, by grace, the spiritual seed of Abraham. As Paul has introduced to us in Romans chapter 4, we are the children of Abraham, and children of Abraham, we are heirs according to the promise. 
through faith alone, apart from works of the law, apart from your works, my works, the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to us through faith. It's been credited to our account and by which, by that righteousness, we ourselves, guilty sinners, declared to be righteous in God's sight and justified. Having been justified by faith, Paul says, Romans chapter 5, we have access. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have access by faith into that justifying grace in which we stand. And we have sure and solid ground on which we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall absolutely certainly be saved by his life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Each of these glorious truths, there are many besides. Right? Many sermons have elapsed between Roman, the end of Romans chapter 3 and now Romans chapter 5. Each of these glorious truths are eventually going to be combined with truths that we're going to look at through chapters 6, 7, and 8, all coming to the inevitable conclusion that we find at the end of chapter 8. That in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, fully persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've been given amazing grace. Amen? Amazing grace. Astounding, astonishing grace. So now at the end of chapter 5 then, Paul is drawing one line of thought to a close and embarking upon another line of thought on his way to that wondrous conclusion, right? And he's taking us, by, as it were, by the hand and guiding us along a path, so to speak, until we get to that conclusion ourselves. And that's where we're headed. And now we change uh, the end of chapter five. We're going to work our way through chapter six. Before he does that, though, before we transition from the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6, there's just one more matter that Paul wants to clarify before moving on. Paul, at the end of chapter 5, anticipates a very important question. Very important question. And we're going to take this week and next week to consider this question. If it's true, if it's true that God has determined to relate to men on the basis of their representation by one of two federal or covenantal heads, either representation through a union with Adam, whereby we are condemned through the imputation of Adam's sin or the accounting of Adam's sin, or representation through Jesus Christ, whereby we are justified through faith on the basis of his imputed righteousness. If that's true, if God relates to us through representation in that way, then what's the purpose of the law? What's the point of the law? Why was the law given? Do you see the point or the importance of the question? Right? The question arises as a logical conclusion to the points that Paul has now been making. Paul has labored to prove that we're not justified by the deeds of the law. No one is justified by the deeds of the law. No one is justified by their works. And now he has proven that we aren't even ultimately condemned by our own works under the law. Death reigned before the law was even given to Moses. So then, so then, what is the purpose of the law? Adam, think with me about our text. Adam was the appointed representative of his entire posterity. All those who by natural generation are born in Adam, are united to Adam, and are represented by Adam. 
When Adam sinned, sin entered the world and death through sin. And in this manner, Paul says, all men sinned in Adam's sin. Verse 19, by one man's disobedience, many were appointed or constituted, right, reckoned as sinners. Through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Now, likewise, by contrast, by gracious comparison, as it were, the last Adam, the great Adam, became the anointed representative of his entire posterity. So that all those who by, not by natural generation, but by supernatural regeneration, all those who are born again and united to him through faith, when he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, his perfect righteousness, consisting of both his active obedience and his passive obedience, we've talked about these things in previous sermons, right? Became their righteousness, his righteousness, became their righteousness by a gift of God's grace when they put their faith and their trust in him. And through one man's obedience then, the free gift came to all men, represented by him, resulting in justification and eternal life. So we've learned then that God has determined to relate to men, to you and I, through a principle that we've called covenantal headship or federal headship, representation. And as such, on the basis of that principle, everything, everything depends upon your relationship to one of these two men, Adam or Christ. You will perish in your sin and suffer the torments of hell under the curse of Adam's sin, or, or you will live eternally as a blessed son of the kingdom beneficiary of every spiritual blessing afforded one who is justified by virtue of Christ's righteousness alone. One of those two camps, everyone divided into one of those two camps with one of those two representatives to that eventual one of those two destinies. Do you see? The point is summarized by the Apostle Paul in those verses that we considered last Lord's Day, verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made or constituted or declared righteous. Die in Adam or live by the grace of God through repentant faith in Jesus Christ. One or the other. Die in Adam, perish in hell for your sin, paying the penalty that your sin rightly deserves. Die in Adam, or live. Live eternally by the grace of God, by the free gift of that grace, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, credited to your account through faith. Be forgiven of your sins, seated in the heavenlies, right? Adopted as a child of God and live forever in him. One or the other, choose this day whom you'll serve. One or the other, there is no other option. There is no middle ground. That principle being true then, someone may ask, what then is the purpose of the law? Why was the law given? If this is the way that God has determined to relate to us, then what purpose does the law serve? Now you can imagine, can't you, thinking about the church at Rome. The church at Rome, a mixture of both ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles, 
of people who've turned from their sin to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But those with a Jewish background, this becomes a very critical, very important question. It's important to Gentiles, but particularly important to to Paul's Jewish audience. The main objection to Christianity on the part of the Jews is the accusation that in the gospel, Paul is setting aside the law. Setting aside the law of Moses, the Jew, as we saw in chapter 3, in chapter 4, into chapter 5, hung everything on the law. All of their hopes were put in the law of Moses. And what they're saying, what they're gathering from what Paul is teaching is that Paul, through the gospel, is setting aside the law entirely. If salvation is by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, then what point does the law serve? Paul, you're setting aside the law. Now you can imagine, too, a great need on the part of those who are fleeing Judaism to turn to Christ is to understand this to get to the bottom of this, like to have a solid answer to this particular question, this particular issue, not merely to evangelize Jews so that they might turn from Judaism to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ, but also in their own hearts so they can take care of that check in their own hearts and minds as they consider the place of the law in the new covenant under Jesus Christ. Confusion on this issue abounded. And because confusion abounded, you see large sections of the text of the New Testament in particular devoted to dealing with this very question. And it's a question that Paul is going to address now at the end of chapter 5. What was true of Jews, converted Jews, in the church at Rome, or even Gentiles in the church at Rome, is still true of the genuine Christian today? The genuine Christian today, we can easily find ourselves confusing or conflating law and gospel. Very simple to do, very easy to do. And conflating the two, confusing the two can wreak havoc on your Christian life, can wreak havoc in your heart and your mind. If we don't have a clear understanding of the distinction between law and gospel, I would submit to you, you're going to have problems. This is something we've got to understand, we've got to get to the bottom of So with the pastor's heart then toward those who may struggle with this issue as as, uh, Paul has, Paul's determined to address this question before we move on to chapter six. Paul is meticulous, isn't he? Faithful. He is um, a masterful attorney, as it were, looking at every detail. And Paul's not gonna leave this stone unturned. Verse 20, moreover then, moreover, the law entered so that the offense might abound. That's interesting, isn't it? But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I've planned for us to consider our text this morning under two simple headings. One, the question of law. Two, the answer of grace. First, the question of law, then the answer of grace. Consider with me then the question of law. The question of law. What is the purpose of the law? What is the function of the law? Why was the law given? Now, Paul ties the question of law to what comes before in our text by use of that word moreover that begins verse 20, moreover. Moreover, Paul would say, as a footnote, as it were, or in addition to all that we've just established, in addition to all that we've just talked about, moreover, the law entered or the law appeared that the offense might abound, right? So Paul in verse 12, in verse 12, Paul speaks of sin entering the world. If you notice there in verse 12, Paul speaks in verse 12 of death 
then entering the world through sin. Sin enters, death enters. Then we have this parenthesis that we talked about before Paul gets back to his comparison and his contrast in verse 18, okay? So in verse 12, Paul speaks of sin entering the world, death entering the world through sin. When we get to verse 20, a Greek prefix is added to that same word for enter, right? Moreover, the law entered, okay? Verse 12, sin entered, death entered through sin. Verse 20, now the law entered. And there's a little Greek prefix. You don't see it in the English. There's a little Greek prefix added to that word for enter, meaning that the law entered alongside. Not simply entered, but entered alongside. So think with me now. Sin enters the world. Death enters the world through sin. And the law then enters alongside. It came in alongside sin. Through the one man, Adam, sin was in the world. And the law was added alongside sin, or the law was given in addition to sin. That's what Paul is saying here, beginning in verse 20. So we have to ask the question then, if we're going to study this text, what was God's purpose for later then adding the law alongside sin? There was this circumstance that existed. Sin has come into the world in death through sin. Later then, God adds law alongside the sin that was already in the world, right? Doesn't Paul say, from Adam to Moses, death reigned. Adam to Moses. So but in that period between the covenant that God made with Adam and the law that was given on Sinai to Moses, in between those, that period of time, death reigned. But why was it that God waited, as it were, to give the law to Moses? What was God's purpose for later adding law alongside sin that was already in the world? Verse 20. Verse 20, the law came in alongside sin so that, or for the purpose that, the offense of sin might abound. So that the offense of sin might increase. Paul says, uh, says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, doesn't he, that uh, the law was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. The law was given by God, think with me, the law was given by God to increase sin or to multiply sin. Notice that he doesn't say the law was given to restrain sin. That's interesting, isn't it? The law wasn't given to, in this case, in this, from this particular perspective. Right? This isn't the only perspective. But Paul's making a point. And from this perspective, he doesn't say that the law was given to restrain sin. He doesn't say that the law was given to diminish sin. But rather, that the law was given that the offense of sin might abound. Now, the law that Paul is referring to here is the law of Moses. And the whole, the entirety of the law of Moses. So the moral law codified on tablets of stone, the ceremonial law, the civil law, the law of Moses contemplated as a whole. So in verse 14, in verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned like Adam sinned. They didn't sin according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. In other words, they didn't sin against a stated, an expressly stated law, verbally communicated law to Adam. They didn't sin like Adam sinned. But when the law was given to Moses at Sinai, then what happened? They began to sin after the likeness of the transgression of Adam, didn't they? When the law was codified on tablets of stone, they now sinned against the law of God in the way, in the manner in which Adam had sinned against the law of God. And by that law, the offense 
of their sin increased, did it not? The offense abounded. We can sin apart from law, can't we? To sin apart from the law is the the testimony of Paul from Romans chapter 1. That we sin against the law written upon our hearts. The work of the law written upon our hearts. And so all men sin. All men sin. Even those who have not been given special revelation from God's word. All men are born sinners, as it were. So we can sin quite apart from the law. To sin under law, to sin against an expressly stated, verbally communicated law given within a covenantal framework is to sin in the likeness and transgression, the likeness of the transgression of Adam. That causes sin to abound. It causes the offense of sin to increase. The offense here abounded. Do you find this unusual to think about the law in this way? Right? That God gave the law to increase the offense of their sin against him. God gave the law to increase offense. Now, incidentally, it's not the only purpose for which the law is given. And we can think of scripturally where the Bible teaches many reasons that the law of God was given. We've talked before here about the threefold use of the law. Uh, the threefold use of the law. The law functions as a mirror. When we look into the mirror of the law, we not only see God's holiness and God's righteousness, but in the mirror of God's holiness and God's righteousness, what do we see? We see our own sinfulness, our own wickedness, our own depravity. So the law is a mirror. We've talked about the law functioning as a civil restraint on evil. And that usually comes with um, civil penalties associated with that law in order to restrain sin. Law in and of itself doesn't restrain sin. It doesn't have the power to restrain sin. Civil law is given with penal sanctions. Uh, There are consequences. You do the crime, you do the time, right? There are sanctions associated with breaking law. And so the law becomes, in that sense, a civil restraint on evil. The law also functions as a guide to life for the believer. Uh, We're not under the law, as it were, uh, in terms of its condemnation. But the law functions as a guide so that we might know how to live Uh, pleasing to our creator. The law was our tutor, wasn't it? To drive us or to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many functions for the law. However, the function that Paul has in mind here at the end of chapter five, the law was given to increase sin, to increase offense. The law was never meant as a means by which men could be saved. The law never meant as a means by which there could be life. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. For if there had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined, imprisoned all under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Not work, but believe. No law and no law keeping is capable of giving life. Martin Lloyd-Jones was really helpful on this account in considering what Paul is teaching here in noting three ways in which the law causes the offense to abound. How is it that the law of God causes sin to increase? How is it that the law of God causes the offense of sin to abound? First, note with me, the law increases our knowledge of sin. The law increases our knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, just a couple pages to the left. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Why? 
because life doesn't come through the law. By the law is the knowledge of sin, you see? Through the law, we come to understand our sin. We come to know our sin. Paul says, Romans chapter 7, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Right? That, that would be a logical question in our context. If the law was given to increase sin, does that mean that God is the author of sin? Or that God causes sin? Or that the law is the cause of sin? Absolutely not. Certainly not. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. On the contrary, Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Think of many, many examples or illustrations to serve our purpose here to understand what Paul is talking about. If I walked in and there was a plate of chocolate chip cookies on the oven, I'm going to consider free to partake of, oh, it's on my oven, it's in my house, uh, unless, unless there was a sign on the cookies that said, do not touch, right? Now, I know those cookies then by, by the words themselves. The words themselves are not sinful, but that word is law, isn't it? Do not touch. So if I now see the law, I understand. I'm brought to an understanding of the law. I'm brought to know that I'm not to touch those cookies. What does that do? That stirs up in me all manner of desire to take the cookies anyway. The cookies on the outside of the note are entirely okay. It's just the cookies underneath the note that I'm not to, right? That's what happens. When I but what, what Paul is saying is essentially, if the note wasn't there, we wouldn't have been familiar with the law. We would not, we would not have known, right? But because the law, the words are there, Paul says, we know the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. You see? So the law increases our knowledge of sin. The law increases our knowledge of sin in a couple of ways. First, it increases our knowledge by defining sin for us, right? In our fallen condition, the image of God in man has been marred. The image of God in man has been defaced by the fall. We often wouldn't even know what sin was unless the law defined sin for us and told us what was right and what was wrong. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7. That's where we get the word transgression. Transgression, there's a distinction between the word sin and the word transgression. Once sin is articulated and defined by the law, we then transgress that law, you see, by sinning against it. And it's through our knowledge of the law that we come to realize that we sin a lot more than we would ever have realized before. The law increases the knowledge of our own sin. By the application of the law, we see the depravity of our own hearts. Frankly, brothers and sisters, it's a, that's a problem today because uh, many churches, I would say, I would say a vast majority, a vast, vast majority of all of those churches uh, today who profess to be evangelical churches fail to preach the law of God. And unless the law of God is preached, we don't know our own sin. We don't have a sense of our own sinfulness. Sin, in our own hearts and minds, does not become exceedingly sinful. The law, the preaching of the law, is absolutely necessary. Most of the time, we wouldn't know we were sinning or not. We would pay absolutely no attention to it. Isn't that the, the truth of most people outside 
church are those who have no interest or regard whatsoever for the law of God. They sin with impunity, not even considering that God has given his law, that is a testimony of his own holy character. And because he is our creator, we as creatures are bound to obey him in keeping with his holy law, in keeping with his holy character, because that not only attends his glory, but it is for our good. And we're not even aware of it because the law has not been preached. Do you see? Not even aware of God's law. And we come to realize and by the application of God's law, by the spirit of God, we come to realize more and more and more. As the spirit of God applies the law of God, we come to understand more and more our depravity, our sinfulness before God. And doesn't that make us cling to him in faith? Because where the law abounds, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Praise God, right? We know we turn to Jesus Christ. And it's not just sinful actions that are revealed or exposed by the law. The law increases our knowledge of heart motive, sinful desires, what the Old Testament used to call concupiscence. Very important uh, not to be lost today. It's not just sinful actions that are sinful, but sinful thoughts, sinful motives, sinful desires. It's out of the heart of man that blasphemies pour forth, right? It's out of the heart of man. It's things that come out of his heart that defile him. The Lord in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter five, listen. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. One example, one example from the whole law, there are many. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye, this is how serious this is, right? If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Yeah, churches don't like the preaching of hell either, but here's Jesus Christ himself preaching hell. This is the truth from God's word. If you don't see your own sinfulness, if you don't have a sense of your own sinfulness, if you have not been brought to feel the weight of your own depravity against God such that you turn from sin and turn to Christ, you will perish in hell. And Jesus Christ is here warning you of that very thing. And brother, sister, listen, you're battling sin. It would be better for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It is more profitable for you than one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. The problem is, isn't it, that we don't just sin with our hand. We don't just sin with our eye. Sin pours forth from the heart of man. We need a dramatic transformation, a new heart, a new nature. Praise God, that's possible in the gospel. Paul makes the point in chapter one that men sin without the law. Sin against the law of nature. They sin against the law, the work of the law written upon their heart. But where the law entered, offenses abound. The law of God also increases our knowledge of sin by magnifying sin. It doesn't just increase our knowledge of sin by defining sin, but also by magnifying the sin that it defines. Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Has then what is good, the law, has then the law become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, so that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, through the law, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Do you see? 
So the law exposes sin. It doesn't merely expose sin through our knowledge of sin, but exposes sin as exceedingly sinful. It puts a magnifying glass on it. The law increases our knowledge of the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin is enslaving. Sin, Romans 7, takes opportunity through the commandment to produce in me all manner of evil desire. Sin, through what is good, produces death. We need the preaching of the law to increase our knowledge of sin, don't we? I'm often amazed at the fact that many professing Christians, having turned to Christ in faith, then disdain the preaching of the law. And many will will falsely accuse us here. That's all I hear at that church is law, 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 and sin, sin, sin. There's grace in preaching of law, isn't there? We need to sense the weight of our sin. Why? Because unless we feel the weight of our sin, we don't appreciate our need. You're walking around with stage four terminal cancer. You're going to die. But you don't see any symptoms. I'm as good as gold. And so you carry on with life as usual. You don't realize that you are being eaten up inside. Do you see? The law is preached so that you might understand your dilemma, your disease, your sickness, as it were, that which is eating you alive from the inside. The law exposes sin as exceedingly sinful so that you might turn to Jesus Christ for the only remedy and be saved and be forgiven and be cleansed and be purified. Right? Those who are well, have no need of a physician. Why did Jesus say that? Because you're sick and you need a physician. He's come to call sinners to repentance. Second, first, the law increases our knowledge of sin. Second, the law increases our conviction of sin, our conviction of sin. As the law increases our knowledge of sin, so the law then, through that knowledge, increases our conviction of sin. The mirror of the law does not only reveal to us the reality of our sin, the mirror of the law reveals to us the holiness of the lawgiver. And the more that we come to see in the searing spotlight of the law, the moral purity of the lawgiver, the more we come to see our sin as not merely transgression against some written code. but We see it as treason against our creator. Psalm 51, David's psalm of repentance Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Who does David appeal to? The lawgiver, the one who is holy, his creator. He's not appealing to a written code. Section 362, paragraph 4, subsection 1, according to the law. No, he appeals to God, his creator. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your faithful character, your gracious character. God, have mercy upon me. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. It's not just a relationship with a written code that we have created by God. We have a relationship with God Almighty. 
the one who holds the universe in his hands, the one that holds your life in his hands. So the law causes the offense to abound first by increasing our knowledge of sin, second, by increasing our conviction of sin, third, the law causes the offense to abound by increasing our proclivity to sin, by aggravating our proclivity to sin, by arousing, as it were, our appetite for sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Flip the page to the right. Romans chapter 7. Look at verse 5. Not only is the law entirely powerless to produce in men the holiness that the law demands, the law actually aggravates human depravity, right? Actually provokes our depraved nature to further sinfulness. Not only does the law not provide for righteousness, the law actually aggravates sinfulness. Verse 5. For when we were were in the flesh, before Jesus Christ, before we were in the Spirit, right? For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. That is interesting, isn't it? Fascinating. That's a little diagnosis, if you will, of the inner workings of sinful, depraved man, his flesh. Sinful passions are aroused by the law. They were at work in our members bearing fruit to death. That is a testimony of the fall and the depravity of man, right? That when God's good, holy, just, and good law is applied to the heart of a wicked sinner, it actually arouses sinful passions in them. Amazing. But now, verse 6, we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. doesn't mean we throw away the law. What does it mean to serve in the newness of the Spirit? The Spirit gives us the strength to obey the law. The Spirit gives us the strength to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in light of these things, verse 7, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? Is the law sin under those circumstances? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But listen, verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment or by the commandment, sin co-ops the law. Do you see? It like a leech. It latches on to the law, latches onto the commandment, latches on to that which is holy, just, and good, and uses it, rides that horse, as it were, producing in me, verse 8, all manner of evil desire. Notice, even the desire is evil concupiscence, right? Even the desire for sin is evil. Goes against the movement in the church today to say that homosexuality is entirely acceptable if you're not engaging in homosexual activity. No, that flies in the face of exactly what Paul is talking about here. Even the desire, even the desire itself is evil, is sinful, okay? Sin, verse 8, taking opportunity by the commandment, sin produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Apart from the law, sin lies dormant, as it were. It's inactive within me. Verse 9, I was alive once without the law, going about my merry way, living as I pleased. But when the commandment came, sin revived through the commandment, 
and I died. It killed me, right? And the commandment, verse 10, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. The law decreed against me, you are dead. You are a cursed sinner under the wrath of God. Why? Verse 11, because sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by the commandment, sin was bringing forth death in me. It killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment, holy, just, and good. It stands opposed to sin. Verse 13, has then what is good become death to me? Has the law, which is holy, just, and good, become death to me? Certainly not. Sin is the death of me, right? Sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. We're going to get to Romans 7 soon, and we'll work through that text very slowly, carefully, and clearly. The law, brothers and sisters, is holy, just, and good. The law is holy, just, and good. But the fall of man has had such a corrupting influence upon our nature. It's had such a, 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 a corrupting influence upon our desires, upon our will, upon our affections, that from the root, from the root of depraved desires, from the root of a depraved will, sin has such an enslaving influence upon our heart and mind that when the law, which is holy, just, and good, tells us what to do, the law arouses within us, depraved people, arouses within us a desire to rebel against it. That's the truth. Now, you think for a minute, you'll know that what Paul is explaining here is exactly the truth. I know it's the right thing to do. That's why I don't do it, right? That was working so well, I'm going to stop doing it. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'll find every other. If you've got on your list, this thing has to be done today. It has to be done today. You'll find 14 other things to do today before that thing. Why? Because there's a law on your sticky note on your computer that says you need to do this today. And what's our sinful? That's, we can, you know, joke and we are, but that's, that is, that's wicked, right? That, that exposes, that exposes the fallen inclination of sinful man's depraved heart. It is a testimony, if you will, of the depravity of our own hearts. What happened when God gave the law at Mount Sinai? Israel sinned more. Sinful men sinned all the more. The offense, the offense abounded. We need to realize that this is true of us. When the law says do this, your initial response is likely some form of no. When the law says do not, there are actually circumstances under which you are provoked within yourself to say, I will. And ultimately, it's not a matter of simply or in and of itself laws created arbitrarily saying do this or don't do that. These things are for our good. We were created by God. Our, the fact that we were created, our very creation, is to terminate upon his glory. And when we, having been created by God, when we terminate upon his glory, it is for our inexpressible joy. Is not the heart of man exalting when we know by virtue of God's spirit that our 
actions, our hearts, our minds, our thoughts are pleasing and acceptable in his sight. We find our end in him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's where man finds his fullness, his joy, his purpose. Maybe the law reveals to you that in fact his commandments are burdensome. Maybe the law reveals to you, in fact, that his yoke is not light, but rather his yoke is heavy. And his yoke is oppressive. It leads to sin. And your sin leads to hypocrisy. You must turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ. If you profess to be a Christian, and his laws are to you heavy and burdensome and oppressive, such that you, in private, rebel against him and put up a front when you come in here. You need to turn from your sin and repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. There's nothing wrong with the law. Nothing wrong with the law. God is certainly not causing us to sin. God is certainly not tempting us to sin. But rather, where the law enters alongside our sinful natures, because of the sinful heart of man, the offense abounds. The problem, the problem lies entirely within the heart of man. Do you see? The law reveals the true nature of man's heart. The more that we understand the law, the more we expose the wickedness of our own heart, the more we are pointed to our only hope, which is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. The Lord says, Matthew 15, these are the things which defile a man. And so when the law of God is applied to the heart of man by the spirit of God, the law kills us. It pronounces upon me a sentence of death. However, however, when the law of God is applied to the heart of man by the spirit of God to one who has been transformed by God, indwelt by his spirit, has had his heart changed. It doesn't pronounce upon him a a sentence of death, but it kills his pride, kills his self-reliance, kills self-righteousness, kills any hope that I would have of attaining some shred of favor with God apart from the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, right? Kills self-righteousness, kills hypocrisy. Paul exclaims, coming to the end of himself with respect to the spirit applying the law of God to his heart, as a Christian man, Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, right? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Many of you this morning can attest to that with Paul. The goodness and grace and mercy of our God that we can say with Paul, I am a wretched man. Thank you, Lord, that I will be rescued from this body of death through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're going through a a pilgrim's progress uh, in our small groups uh, during the week. John Bunyan uh, wrote just a great look into the Christian life. And so I was thinking about Pilgrim's Progress and this subject. Listen to Bunyan and how Bunyan describes this understanding of the law through Christian's experience at the house of the interpreter. Listen. 
the interpreter took Christian by the hand. I love that. That's a picture of God taking us by the hand, right? Guiding us. The interpreter took Christian by the hand, led him into a very large parlor that was full of dust because it was never swept. The witch, after he had received a reviewed a little while, the interpreter called for a man to sweep. Now, when the man began to sweep, the dust began so abundantly to fly about that Christian had almost therewith been choked. Then said the interpreter to a damsel that stood by, bring hither the water and sprinkle the room. The witch, when she had done, it was swept and cleansed with ease. Then said Christian, what means this? (laughs) The interpreter answered, this parlor is the heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man. You can imagine, speaking of our depravity, the way that the Bible teaches us is that that dust, our inward corruption, reaches into every corner of our existence, every faculty of our being corrupted by the dust of our sin, right? And what does the law do? The law comes in and begins to sweep that dust up, right? So he that began to sweep at first is the law. She that brought water and did sprinkle it is the gospel. Now, Whereas thou sawest that so soon as the first began to sweep, the dust did so fly about that the room by him could not be cleansed, but that thou wast almost choked therewith, this is to show you that the law, instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, doth revive, put strength into, and increase it in the soul, even as it doth discover and forbid it, for it doth not give power to subdue. In other words, when the broom of the law comes in, begins to sweep at that dust in man's heart, that sin, that inward corruption, it doesn't get rid of it. It stirs it up so that you choke on it, right? It stirs it up so that you choke on it. It doesn't give you power to get rid of it. It puts it in your nostrils, puts it in your lungs, right? Crams it down your throat, so to speak. Now again, as thou sawest the damsel then sprinkle the room with water upon which it was cleansed with ease, this is to show thee that when the gospel comes in the sweet and precious influences thereof to the heart, then I say, even as thou sawest the damsel lay the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is sin vanquished and subdued, and the soul made clean through the faith of it, and consequently fit for the king of glory to inhabit The gospel comes, subdues sin, sweeps it clean by faith, through faith, vanquishes sin in the heart. It's a picture of our sanctification, isn't it? After cleansing. It's a picture of what Paul's describing in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered. What happened when the law entered? The offense abounded. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Apart from the preaching of the law, you don't notice the dust. Apart from the preaching of the law, you don't realize that you're filthy. And we don't use that word um, in a cavalier way. We're filthy. And the law clearly states that it is so. That law which is holy, just, and good, that is a, a testimony of God's own character. The law says that we are. The law clearly shows us that we are. We can see it for ourselves. 
That renders the preaching of the law, brothers and sisters, an absolute life and death necessity. An absolute life and death necessity. The law points us to the gospel. A superficial understanding of our sinfulness under the law leads to a superficial application of the truths of the gospel. If you don't sense the weight of your own need, then you won't sense your need for the remedy, the only remedy. Unless men come to sense the exceeding sinfulness of their own sin under the law, they will never understand and come to appreciate the riches of grace and abounding mercy, the true nature of the saving operations that work in the gospel. Our greatest need is not handling with kit gloves, right? Our greatest need is not to have our egos stroked or our esteem bolstered. That's horse hockey. <laughs> the last thing we need is more self-esteem, right? The greatest need that we have is not to feel good about ourselves, to somehow blunt the tip of the law's uh, spear. Man's real and genuine and pressing need is the gospel. Why? Because man's real and genuine problem is his wretched sinfulness before a holy God. How can you come to understand your need, your need for forgiveness, your need for righteousness? How can you come to understand the gravity of, the extent, the scope of your rebellion against God, the brilliant, multifaceted diamond of the gospel always, always shines against the black backdrop of man's sin. It's magnified against the black backdrop of man's sin. It's the remedy. God's wrath has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, and for that reason, the gospel, righteousness has been revealed from heaven. Preaching of the law produces soft hearts. It assails the self-righteous. It assails the religious hypocrite. No one escapes. Preaching of the law produces a hunger and a thirst for righteousness when applied by the Spirit fuels or motivates our sanctification. Brothers and sisters, we need the preaching of the law. We need to be under convictional preaching. We need to be under the word of God applied to my heart, your heart, my mind, your mind. We need to know what the word of God says about us. We need our condition diagnosed clearly in no mixed terms so that we might turn from that sin to trust Jesus Christ. It's when we become complacent with our sin. It's when we happily cohabitate with our sin that we become self-righteous and self-reliant and have no need of the gospel, have no need for Jesus Christ. We need the law preached. We need to sit under the preaching of the law so that we might revel in and rejoice in the gospel. The two go hand in hand, do you see? The two go hand in hand. The law points sinners to their only hope, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Verse 20. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. We're going to talk about the answer of grace next week. Uh, Paul uses one Greek word in the first two occurrences in verse 20 of that word abounded. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. 
where sin abounded. That's one word, okay? But then he uses an entirely different word for the last abounded. Grace abounded. That's a different word. Grace abounded much more. Where sin, here's what the word means. Where sin abounded, where the offense came in and abounded, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. That's what it means. Grace came in a tremendous, lavish, overflowing excess. It refers to an overflowing excess, that word. Grace was poured out like a flood. Poured out like a flood. And what does Paul mean by that? Why does Paul use that kind of language? He uses it to make a point, to make a point. There is simply no amount of sin that exceeds the reach of God's superabounding grace. No amount of sin that can whelm the flood, the lavish outpouring of God's grace. And the more that we understand the sense and the weight of our sin under the law, the more amazing and lavish and extravagant and tremendous that flood of grace is. And it is a flood of grace. Where sin abounded, grace superabounded. It flooded in, flooded in with a remedy to all, our, all that ails us, right? It flooded in with an answer to our deepest problem, flooded in with deliverance and salvation and forgiveness and mercy. We need to see our plight under the law. And where we see our plight under the law, God answers our plight in super abounding, lavish, poured out, flooding grace. Do you see? So acknowledge your rebellion. Acknowledge your need. And then turn to Christ in the gospel and rejoice. Rejoice that the gospel offers us forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Offers uh, to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Not only are we offered forgiveness, not only are we cleansed from our unrighteousness, but then we are given, imputed, the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it floods. Grace floods in. You would never, never, in an infinite number of lifetimes, ever produce anything close to the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is poured out on you, poured into you as a gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ who secured it for us. Amazing, amazing grace. Paul's been using that, that phrase much more, right? Where sin abounded, much, 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 much more Grace superabounded. Turn to Jesus Christ for grace and mercy. If you're a brother or sister here today who is struggling with sin, struggling under the weight of sin, turn to Jesus Christ in faith. We are going to, uh, in the power of God's Spirit, overcome through faith. We must trust Him in that fight. Trust Him. He is gracious. He is gracious. If you're here, you've never turned from your sin. You're living for yourself. You've always lived life for yourself. You're still living in your sin. You're going to die. And you're going to give an account to the one who created you. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Put your faith and trust in him. He will give you life in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of your sins. He'll seat you in the heavenlies. Make you an adopted son. An inheritor. A co-heir with Christ. Such lavish grace. And that can be yours through faith in Jesus Christ. Abandon living life for yourself. Turn to, in, to Christ in faith.
You can have peace with God and eternal life today. You can have peace with God. Your destiny as a hell-deserving sinner can be changed when you put your faith and trust in him by the mercies of our God, by the grace of our God toward you through the work, the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him and be saved, amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we are grateful to you for your law, which is holy, just, and good. We're grateful for the care and frankly, Lord, the determination with which you and your own word preach the law to us so that we might see our need. Thank you, Lord. I pray that your spirit would illumine our understanding so we always have a consciousness of our great need for the purpose that understanding and sensing the weight of our own need, we might cling to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ resting and trusting in him as our righteousness for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our souls. We need you, Lord. Bring us to an understanding of our need that we might cling to Christ in faith. Those here unconverted, Lord, they need you. They need you or they will perish eternally. Bring them to an understanding of their need. They might cling to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in faith and be converted that their sins might be blotted out. All this, Lord, terminating in your glory to the praise of the glory of your grace trophies of your grace for all eternity praising you for your abounding grace the riches of your mercy your kindness toward us in christ jesus may you be praised all this we pray in the name the great name of our god and savior jesus christ amen